Hello and welcome to this month's installment of the Yale Journal of Biology and Medicine podcast. YJBM is a PubMed Index quarterly journal edited by Yale medical graduate and professional students and peer-reviewed by experts in the field of biology and medicine. Today's episode is the second devoted to our December 2017 issue on gene editing. Each issue of the journal is devoted to a focus topic, and through the episodes of this podcast series, we will take you through the past, the present, and the future of the issue's subject matter. I am your host, John Ventura, a fifth-year student in the microbiology program. And I am Neil Ravindra, a fourth-year PhD student in the molecular biophysics and biochemistry department. We are honored to have joining us today Dr. Pasquale Patrizio, Professor of Obstetrics, Gynecology, and Reproductive Sciences at the Yale Medical School and Director of the Yale Fertility Center and Fertility Preservation Program. Thank you so much for coming into the studio today, Dr. Patrizio. Thank you for inviting me and having me. Just as a, as a quick means of introduction, could you discuss some of the research you are associated with, both as Director of the Yale Fertility Center and as an independent principal investigator? and its connection with modern gene editing technologies? Yes. Uh, uh, with the line of my work uh, in uh, working in uh, in vitro fertilization, uh, uh, part of the research uh, which I'm involved in is uh, uh, studying uh, uh, embryonic stem cells and uh, uh, also uh, as a role in uh, embryonic stem cell research oversight committee to uh, check a uh, type of research that is conducted at Yale, which fulfill the requirement for embryonic uh, stem cell. Uh, I'm also, I also wear another hat, which is the hat of being a, a professor of bioethics here at the uh, Center for Bioethics because I have a master in bioethics. So in this way, I think I'm well positioned in uh, covering both aspects of uh, bringing research forward in an ethical manner. Um, the current use and the future promotion of novel gene editing technologies could wield enormous influences on human life in both a clinical and cultural context. How would you f- define gene editing in your own words? Well, gene editing, uh, I can define it as a, 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 a tool uh, able to provide a, a precise molecular uh, uh, mechanism to edit, therefore, to fix uh, abnormal uh, genes. I, I always like to, to use the, the example of imagine a scissor with whom you are going to be cutting an abnormal uh, uh, sequ- sequence of DNA, and then uh, after that sequence that is abnormal is, uh, has been removed, you are going to pass in it with a different uh, uh, system the correct ones. So that's, that's the easiest way to understand it. Now you mentioned you mentioned abnormal genes only in your in your mind do you do you not consider um, modification of normal functioning genes as part of gene editing technologies? Right, this is a, an important point, and that uh, uh, we should focus uh, prim- primarily uh, on uh, uh, editing abnormal genes, genes that are known to cause mutations, which are uh, uh, in turn uh, uh, responsible for uh, uh, disease which at the moment are uh, incurable or diseases that are long chronic uh, uh, standing and therefore extremely um, important in impacting uh, the healthcare uh, of individuals. So I don't think that uh, we will be talking, at least in the immediate future, 
of modifying uh, characteristics or genes that are not necessarily associated with the disease. And um, have you have you already started focusing on particular genes in your laboratory in your independent investigations? No, uh, not directly. But uh, I know colleagues that are working on uh, on uh, on this topic and uh, in in a different university, not only uh, here um, in the New Haven area. Um, so gene editing has been used in a research environment already for a number of years, and. Uh, what is important to stress, most of the research has been conducted in, uh, in animals, uh, cell lines, and uh, therefore uh, once enough information has been gathered from these models, the next step obviously is to uh, transport the information in, uh, into the, uh, in, in human uh, studies. So at the moment, uh, studies have been done in, with all animals, uh, where, uh, uh, for example, in, mouse, in, in the mice model, they've been able to correct uh, some liver disease. Uh, there have been also studies that have been done uh, on um, uh, fixing the sequence of embryonic uh, uh, stem cells. So in a way that you can produce, by fixing in vitro uh, abnormal genes, proper heart cells, proper neuronal cells. So these are uh, uh, studies that are really uh, laying the, the groundwork for then uh, uh, passing to the uni uh, to human uh, uh, applications. Yeah, and definitely as, um, as the basic research uh, on g is continuing um, to grow, the gene editing is now also being introduced into clinical settings. What would you say is the is the major or are the major differences between gene editing in the laboratory research setting versus gene editing in a clinical setting? Well, first, uh, uh, you need to have a, a very solid uh, confirmation of uh, the experiments that are done in, uh, in uh, laboratory settings because, uh, first and foremost, uh, laboratory conditions are never the same like uh, uh, the one that you encounter in vivo when you are uh, transporting the technique, uh, particularly in humans, in a human uh, uh, living uh, uh, individual. The, uh, however, what is important is that uh, the uh, studies that are currently going on are trying to correct or trying to uh, anticipate uh, all this possible uh, uh, offshoot from applying uh, a technique from the laboratory to, to the humans. Therefore, that's probably one of the reasons why uh, in 2017, for example, there were three studies that uh, were approved by the Food and Drug Administration to be carried out in humans, uh, but not more than three. So the, the steps are being taken, but very slowly, just to be sure that we are not uh, missing uh, potential offshoot or side effects of uh, introdu introduction of the, the genome editing in humans before we understand fully the extent of uh, potential consequences. So as, as these technologies are used and knowledge of them circulates through popular culture at large, how would you characterize the differences between what scientists or clinicians think of when the term, quote, gene editing, unquote, is used versus what the general public thinks when that term is used? Yeah, as, as you already uh, mentioned briefly uh, earlier, it is important to keep a distinction between uh, uh, disease uh, curing uh, intervention 
versus non-disease curing intervention. And there is, it is very easy for, uh, for the public, for the lay public, to, um, to uh, lack the grasping on what exactly the scientists are trying to do. I want to stress one more time, we are not here to try to uh, change uh, characteristics that are not related to disease uh, impacting uh, life. We are here just to focus on uh, specifically on disease like the cystic fibrosis, uh, Duchenne uh, 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 um, dystrophy muscular. Yeah. Uh, we are also trying to fix uh, blindness uh, like the retinitis pigmentosus. So these are uh, very serious conditions that at the moment there is no cure. We are not here to make individual uh, elite athletes or uh, super uh, uh, giants uh, or uh, uh, strong soldiers. Uh, we, are not, we are not doing that. We are not here to modify the color of the eyes, the heights of the individual. We are not. So you were, you were mentioning earlier about delivering therapy safely into patients and this being one of the crucial elements of, a, of an overall therapy approach. and. Um, um, how, how can biomedical engineers here working to advance gene therapy systems uh, that are going to be used eventually in human patients ensure that it's going to be delivered safely? Um, because uh, like one of the most popular and groundbreaking technologies, CRISPR-Cas, I mean, those, those enzymes derive from a human pathogen, right? And uh, delivering those proteins could, in theory, elicit a strong immune response. Well, that's a very important point, and that's why, uh, as I said earlier, only three trials have been so far granted uh, approval for being conducted in humans. There are. Uh, uh, I would like to say that uh, we should frame the uh, introduction of uh, this technology in humans uh, after uh, uh, there are at least uh, uh, all the technical challenges that can be uh, envisioned are going to be uh, resolved or overcome. First, we should, uh, uh, you know, researchers should set and reach targets of accuracy and efficiency in uh, um, uh, both the cleavage of the cell population in which this technique has been introduced. In other words, you need to make sure that this is going to be lasting uh, in uh, two, three, four, five replications down the road and, not, and, and it's not uh, right. a, a short-lived accuracy. Uh, second, like you said, we need to make sure that there is an efficient uh, delivery of these scissors and the past cut-and-paste mechanism yeah. into the cells. Uh, yes, we are borrowing uh, uh, the same machinery that uh, virus and other uh, pathogens are using yeah, but that is efficient, and if it's made uh, 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 safely reproducible, then I'm totally okay with that. Uh, and uh, with that comes the third point, which is we need to understand very well how to control the repair mechanisms, okay? So, because you don't want to have the offshoot. You don't want to have uh, uh, things that you are not right now thinking of and down the road, a different gene, a different uh, um, uh, sequence of uh, nucleotide is going to be activated because something was changed, a few uh, nucleotides uh, uh, up, upstream or downstream, and that's also important. And the fourth is uh, really to be able to um, pre predictably define the uh, uh, mutational outcome of the DNA that has been repaired. Mm -hmm. um, th these are four uh, premises that, uh, uh, the basic research is uh, trying to cover and explain in details. 
All right. Um, but uh, as you envision, like that's so you're talking about current and future gene editing technology, and like I, I'm, I'm curious, how do you envision how the uh, the how it's going to uh, evolve into the future? Like, how is future gene editing technology going to look? I'm, that's I'm that's a very I know very it's speculative. I'm just speculative, curious. but it's also very deep uh, thinking because uh, you see. I would like to make a, a distinction in that uh, so far we have been talking about uh, fixing, editing, mutation in uh, somatic cells. Yeah. Meaning that, okay, we are going to be fixing whatever is uh, uh, faulty in an individual that has already been born. We have not been talking yet of uh, what is considered the holy grain of uh, uh, genomic technologies, which is uh, germline modification. Right. In other words, if I can change, fix, adjust, uh, cure an abnormal uh, set of genes in an embryo, that embryo then is going to be able to pass on in the, by, by putting in the germline to, different, to, to new generations. So we are to completely deplete, delete the abnormal gene uh, mutations in generations. In the human population. In the yeah. human, perhaps mm -hmm. in the human population, many years down the road. Uh, now, that can be good, that can be bad, but, but that's an important point. So what the genomic technology is really uncovering now, or is putting again, again in the center, uh, center stage, is what has always been a no trespassing line, which is uh, we don't go into germline modifications. But is this still applicable with the CRISP-Cas technology? Is this still applicable with the genomic editing? Mm. Before it was applicable when we were saying, well, we don't, we don't want to go there because we really have no idea. Well, now we are, we are learning now. In animal models, we are learning that it can be propagated in the next generation safely. Yeah. So you have been really cured, uh, deleted from, uh, from the gene pools, those are abnormal ones. And then, uh, honestly, brings up another very important problem, and there is, okay, if this is really going to be the future where we can uh, fix faulty genes for good, are humans uh, going to reproduce no longer in, uh, in the way that uh, they've been doing it for millions of years? Are we all going to have assisted reproduction to help uh, to reproduce, Be not only for yeah. infertile <laughs> couples, but also for fertile couples. Well, if it's true that we are already doing and we already have available in clinic settings a vast array of uh, uh, preconception screening to find out whether uh, the man carries uh, a mutation and the woman carries a mutation, and we know this before they are reproducing, are we going to expand this to the entire population also of non-infertile individual? with the goal in mind one day that, okay, we, we, we don't want to have any longer uh, children born with cystic fibrosis, but also with another vast array of, uh, of genetic uh, disease. Right. And that opens another, a big can of worms. You know, who is it going to be uh, tested for? Only those that, are, uh, that, that can afford it. So it's a very long, complex, winding road. But we, we need to ask this question. Right. Yeah, so, I mean, ethical debates concerning genome modification are hardly 
new in, in this podcast, especially, we've been attempting to understand how we should execute this technology in an ethical uh, way and, and address some of the issues that have been covered in the past, at least since the 1970s with the advent of recombinant DNA technology. Could you help us understand what worried the researchers and physicians during those past debates and how those uh, concerns relate to today's ethical considerations? Uh, I, I really the, the concern is the it's the the holy grain. These are the germline modifications because because if you don't know in the past we did not know the full extent of uh, uh, making a modification in the in the genome line uh, could have been in in the in the next generation that was a no no that was a no trespass line. But now we are trying now we are starting to understand. So therefore, the the firm boundary of doing germline modification is becoming uh, no firm anymore. There are four nations at the at the present time. There are four countries: Sweden, UK, Japan, and China, that they have already approved research on uh, CRISP-based uh, uh, genome editing for for human embryos. So for them, the germline modification is already a go. And um, so, and in the meantime, they are giving uh, uh, the okay, green light to ongoing uh, clinical trials for fixing some uh, uh, red blood cell and white blood cell disease, so hematopoietic uh, uh, and uh, induced pluripotent stem cell therapies. So, it's slowly going, and 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 the fears of the past have been a little bit less uh, intense as we've been learning more from the laboratory work. And these four countries that are already moving in the direction of uh, having already approved germline modification, uh, I'm sure that there will be more and more and more that they will do, particularly if they will be reporting uh, positive outcomes. Do you have any impressions or insights that you want to share about the, the status of that debate in the United States where the NIH bans any germline modification research? I only know a little about uh, the, the United States. I know that uh, there is still a ban, and the germline modification is still not uh, uh, something to, to, to be considered and is not going to be funded. And, and just uh, going back to what you were commenting on earlier about, about how genomic technologies are changing how fertility relates to men and women um, decisions, uh, do you think that based off of genome sequencing and um, all of those technologies, do you think that it's kind of a different debate about how fertility will change versus how fertility change when we also consider genome sequencing and gene editing technology? Yes, uh, I think that uh, if uh, the predictions of knowing much more each one uh, uh, genomic background uh, the prediction of knowing more and more the possibility that uh, you can uh, screen uh, and cure now embryos that are impacted by uh, genomic uh, uh, conditions, this is going to change uh, uh, the, the field in a, in, a, in a very impactful way. The, what we do currently is going to be uh, passe, because what we are doing currently, if I have an embryo that is impacted uh, by cystic fibrosis, 
the only thing I'm the only thing that I'm doing right now I'm deselecting that embryo for transfer. Well, that means that that embryo is going to be not usable. Genome uh, genome editing technology is going to allow that embryo that is created in vitro to be used because I can fix it and therefore uh, is going to be improving uh, the uh, efficacy uh, of of the treatment and this is really a tremendous uh, uh, step forward yeah that that's a great way of introducing something that interests me because you put such a you found a positive interpretation of it like when gene editing and uh, uh, is is discussed in, to the general audience by clinicians, uh, educators, and journalists. Uh, what are the things would you wish they would focus on when they were informing the general public? Yeah, the first of all, I will. I think that uh, we any type of new research should be made very easy to understand to the general public. So, but it should also be done in a very transparent way. The difficulties should be shared with the public at large. The honesty of the researcher should be also mm-hmm. uh, of the foremost importance. And, uh, and I, again, uh, the, the steps, and it's a step-by-step process, should involve public in a general discussion. So I I think that by having a clarity of uh, terminology, having a a clarity and transparency on what type of research goal you have in mind, and including member of the lay uh, audience in committees, in uh, it's it's really the best way to involve the public without the so-called fake news, right? Like kind of how IACUC panels work for animal, for when when a, when a lab wants to work yes. with animals, they have a they have a uh, an expert Yaku, that yes. is in the lay that yes. lay population involved yes. in the committee. But uh, again, I, I think that has been coming up a couple of times already in the in in our discussion over today. Uh, and I want to stress it one more time that uh, even that uh, unseemingly uh, straightforward uh, or seemingly straightforward scenario that I propose to, to you today, which is the curing the gene for cystic fibrosis. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's a straightforward scenario, but still raises some uh, uh, serious concern. And, and I don't want people to think that uh, we are not thinking about it. what are these, this serious concern. Number one uh, is that we really don't know yet, uh, we, we don't have a full knowledge on how the interaction of that gene that has been modified, what interaction is going to play with the environment, with the family that is going to be raising that, that, that child, with the rest of the genes that are uh, you know, upstream or downstream. So we don't know that yet. So we need to start to do these experiments. We need to start to do these therapeutic experiments step by step under surveillance yeah. and then uh, uh, slowly implement it if they are successful. And, and along with some of those concerns then, uh, going off of those, some of those concerns, do you think it's possible that the benefits for potentially curing uh, deleter- deleterious genetic diseases like cystic fibrosis may outweigh, may not outweigh, rather, the cost of introducing this technology into human society? 
Well, that's a, 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 an action that has to be done at this calculation because uh, you need to see how, you know, today we are uh, uh, gaining more and more life, uh, uh, lifetime on individuals that are impacted by cystic fibrosis compared to 30 years ago when uh, an individual with this full-blown CF cystic fibrosis was going to live, like, say, 20, 25 years, where now they are reaching 35, 40 years, 40. So how much is it going to be the cost and the, the adjusted quality of life for those years while you may have a completely removal of the disease altogether, uh, if it's successful, of mm-hmm. course? But then you need to reproduce with in vitro fertilization and uh, and do the the fixing of the embryo cure the embryo while he's in the in the in the laboratory yeah so so is is that a scientific calculus or something that the general public really needs to weigh in on in the debate well i think that should be still a scientific calculation and uh, there should be different stakeholders sitting at the table not only the scientists but because it's going to be uh, something that I hope that insurance will 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 uh, be uh, provided as a benefit. They should be also part of the discussion. Yeah, we brought up a lot of things today, and I was just thinking, just because you're you're bringing it back more also into the sociological element that you're bringing in. And um, what do you think is one of the biggest misgivings that people have? It's like when when you when you have discussions with with patients that you have, or or just individuals in your uh, in your periphery, like, what do you think is the biggest misgiving that people have that, that, that keeps popping up? Well, the misgiving is that uh, uh, there is no clarity yeah. in uh, in a number of technologies. Not only this one that is the most uh, that, that, that is still probably a few years away from getting into the mainstream. But I'm talking about past uh, past technologies, uh, even when. Uh, Originally, the introduction of uh, pre-implantation genetic screening and pre-implantation genetic diagnosis were introduced in the laboratory for infertile couples. The misgiving was, oh, okay, so I'm going to reproduce. Since I were to do in vitro anyway, yeah. I want to <laughs> test everything that you can test. Well, misgivings. Not, if there is not such an, an entity that I can test, there is no way that I can test. The testing itself it's not 100% accurate. So I may be giving you a wrong diagnosis. Yeah. So, and this is something that is not always explained uh, for a variety of reasons. Conflict of interest could be one to, to patients. And therefore, uh, in the, in, in the uh, discussion that we want to entertain with our uh, public, and the public has to be our best allied, ally, no, we need to have alliance with them. This has to be a priority. We need to have lay people understanding what we are trying to do and, uh, and do it in a very constructive manner. Yeah. Did you have any other uh, final words? No, I think the, we are really on the cusp of a, a really a fantastic opportunity, not only for curing disease. One thing that we did not discuss for the sake of time is that uh, if uh, genomic uh, CRISPR technology, uh, can that be used also in other fields? Mm-hmm. And uh, can we use it to, to, to cure conditions like the malaria, for example? Can we modify the, the, the mosquito that is uh, bearing this type of disease in a way that we do not have anymore 
this uh, this condition can we fix it with the malaria mosquito also the um, uh, the sickle cell yeah. uh, disease so there are other opportunities can we also create animal models uh, where uh, we have now cre- we have now inserted in their germline some uh, humanized uh, cells that may render the um, xenotransplant or organs from uh, you know like for example porcine valve for the heart no longer rejected by by, by human bodies and that, right. that that can be another field of application yeah. there's even like a second green revolution too a second green revolution you know. i agree with you yeah and that wraps up another episode of the YJBM podcast in our series on gene editing thank you once again to dr patrizio for joining us please join us uh, for the next special series on sensory biology and pain This will be the YJBM's March 2018 issue with episodes posted in April and May. Thank you to the School of Medicine for being a home for YJBM and the podcast. Thank you to the Yale Broadcast Center for help with recording, editing, and publishing our podcast. Thank you to our co-editors-in-chief, Helen Byanson and Yasmin Zakanyaz, and the rest of the YJBM editorial board. For more information on YJBM and our podcast, please visit yjbm.com. Yale.edu. Be sure to check out our journal by searching Yale Journal of Biology and Medicine at PubMed.com or following our Twitter feed with the handle the YJBM. If you would like to contact us, please email us at YJBM at Yale.edu. Thanks. And thanks for listening.